Our summer passage this morning comes from Isaiah 12. Isaiah 12, and if you are reading on one of the Bibles beneath your seats, that's on page 576. 576. This is the word of the Lord. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust, I will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, please open our eyes, prepare our hearts to understand, and please transform us this morning by the study of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why do we sing? Singing has always been such an essential part of human life. Even one of the most beloved books of the Bible, the book of Psalms, is all about singing. Well, I think we can agree that sadly, in contemporary culture, singing has mostly to do with entertainment. We sing just to pass the time. We sing to be distracted from the problems of life. Or maybe we are so distracted that we don't sing at all. But if we think about it, timeless songs, really good songs, are not just to pass the time. They are about the overflow of the heart. Think about Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. That's a sad song. Even without any lyrics, just by listening to it, you feel that it's sad, that it's supposed to express sadness. In contrast, also Beethoven, Ode to Joy. Well, that one is easy as the title implies. It is supposed to be a joyful song to express joyfulness. What is the soundtrack of your life today? Maybe it is a happy song. Maybe you have all to joy in your ears. Things are going really well. You almost feel like dancing. Please don't. But maybe that's how you feel. But maybe the soundtrack of your life today is a sad song. 
things are not going well. And Moonlight Sonata would sound more appropriate. It is fitting to be sad sometimes. The Bible itself says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. It also says, Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day, and like vinegar on soda. But we need to be careful here. If you are sad all the time, that's reason for concern. On the other hand, what brings you ultimate joy? Not just a superficial enthusiasm, a deep sense of thankfulness that produces joy, even in the hardest of times. Well, Isaiah 12 is a song. It expresses thanksgiving, trust, and joy. And the expected result from that is proclamation. Isaiah 12 is divided into six verses. These verses are divided into two stanzas. Stanza number one, verses one, two, and three, is about thanksgiving, trust, and joy. This stanza is to a great degree mirrored in stanza number two, verses four, five, and six. Chapter 11, that we saw last week, paints a picture of restoration. The kingdom of God has been and will be restored through King Jesus. Although in previous chapters, we saw the picture of a forest burned down with nothing but its temples left behind. From one of these stumps, God brings forth a shoot. It is a beautiful picture. Although God came in judgment, like a fire, he will bring restoration. It looks so small, just a tiny shoot. But that shoot will grow into a signal for the nations. Well, chapter 12 is the answer to that. Basically, all commentators believe that chapter 12 is the end of the first major section in the book of Isaiah, beginning all the way in chapter 1. William Van Gameren calls this section, The Lord is the Holy One of Israel. He calls chapter 12, The Hymn of the Redeemed. E.J. Young also believes that this chapter is the end of the first main section of the book. He calls this first section, The Crisis and the Messiah. And he calls chapter 12, A Victorious Song of praise. Alec Motier also believes that chapter 12 is the end of the first major section that he calls the triumph of grace. He highlights the themes of salvation, joy, and proclamation in this chapter. And what did we see so far in the book of Isaiah in this first main section? We saw a promise of judgment, but also of restoration. God is promising that he will judge his people because they broke the covenant. But he's also promising that he will restore them. And this leads to thanksgiving, trust, 
and joy. And the desire to proclaim this in song, what God has done to us. So, in summary, what do we see here in chapter 12? The song of praise of the redeemed who have been saved by God's grace by the coming king. What is the overflow of your heart today? My prayer is that this song will change our heart and that it will lead you into thanksgiving, trust, and joy. And that it will also lead you to proclaim the great deeds of the Lord. So, verse 1 is about thanksgiving. The you in verse 1, maybe you noticed, is in the singular. So apparently what Isaiah is doing here is describing this one individual that personifies all of Abraham's descendants. This is what each son of Abraham will say in that day. I will give thanks to the Lord. Why will the sons of Abraham be thankful. Because although God was angry with his people, his anger was turned away in order to comfort them. So, first of all, why was God angry? Because Israel broke the covenant. And what happened? His anger was turned away. With what purpose? With the purpose to comfort his people. This is God's purpose, to comfort his people. If you have been saved from death, wouldn't you say something like that? Wouldn't you be eternally thankful? Wouldn't you turn to the person who saved you and say, I own will my life. I have eternal thankfulness because you did that. Well, that's exactly the case if you are a Christian. That's what happened to you. You have been saved and you are supposed to be thankful. The main idea in this verse is that we are thankful. We are thankful because instead of justice, we received mercy. We give thanks to God because he turns his anger away in order to comfort us. How is this fulfilled in Christ? We also broke God's covenant. God's justice is turned away from us to Jesus. Christ received in his body the justice that was due to us, not only on the cross, but during his whole life. The late theologian Gerardus Voss says that the blood that Jesus spilled in his circumcision is as worthy as the blood he spilled in his crucifixion. He wasn't supposed to suffer like that. Jesus lived a perfect life so that his righteousness is added to our account. And how do we respond to that? With thanksgiving. In our lives, 
We want you to do nothing else but to be thankful for this great salvation. Verse number two is about trust. Read with me again, please. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. So, because the Lord God is my strength, because the Lord God is my song, because the Lord God has become my salvation, then I will trust. I will not be afraid. So to truly appreciate what is going on here, we have to go back to Exodus, Exodus 15 that we just read this morning. Uh, Exodus 15 is a really important passage in the Bible. It is important because it is the passage in which the Israelites just crossed the Red Sea. It is called the Song of Moses. It is also called the Song of the Sea. Song of the Sea because they just crossed the Red Sea. It tells in poetry what was just described in prose, this crossing of the Red Sea. And as we saw, it begins like this. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Did you notice something? The song of the sea, Exodus 15 says... The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Compare this to what we read in Isaiah 12. The Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. See what is happening? Isaiah is quoting directly from the song of the sea. Well, there is one tiny difference. Moses says... The Lord is my strength and my song. Isaiah says, the Lord God is my strength and my song. So you probably notice, if you are using the ESV, the Lord God is all in capital letters. This is what the translators do when they are translating Yahweh, the personal name of God, the covenantal name of God. This is the name with which God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. That's also the name that God used when he talked to Israel in the Mount Sinai. But maybe you notice something else. There is a footnote in the ESV that says, Yah, the Lord. Yah is an abbreviation of the personal name of God. So it is like Isaiah saying, The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song. I like what the Christian Standard Bible does in this verse. It says, The Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my song. This line from the Song of the Sea would immediately ring a million bells for any Israelite. It is saying that the same God who delivered them from Egypt, the Lord himself would deliver them from exile. When Isaiah predicts the future redemption of Israel, he reminds them of their previous deliverance in the Exodus. 
That's what Peter Gentry and other theologians say. They say that Isaiah is predicting a new exodus for the people of God. Why the sons of Abraham can trust? Because God does not change. He's the same God who brought them from Egypt. He doesn't change in who he is. He doesn't change in his promises. What God promised, he will fulfill. And God promised Abraham that in him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. How is this fulfilled in Christ? God promised not to bless the physical descendants of Abraham only. God promised, as Paul explains in Romans 4, to bless all the children of Abraham who have the same faith that Abraham had, people from all the nations. If you are a Christian, you are one of these people. And how do we respond to that? We respond in trust. Because we have a God who is faithful to his promises. Maybe that's one of the main difficulties we have in life. To trust. We ask questions like, can I hire this person to work for me? Or can I trust my children with this kind of responsibility? Sadly, we ask something like, can I trust my spouse? It is hard. Because on one time or another, we have been disappointed. And if we are honest we are with ourselves, we also disappointed others. And sadly, we transfer that feeling to God. We don't know if we can trust God. But how can I know that God will not disappoint me like other people did? The biblical answer for that is this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Because God gave us his son and because Christ went willingly to the cross, we know that we can trust him. Verse 3 is about joy. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In order to truly appreciate what Isaiah is saying here, we have to keep looking on Exodus 15. So the Israelites fled from Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. The sea swallowed Pharaoh and his army. Moses, Miriam, and all the people of Israel sang. And what happened next? Well, they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And then they came to a place called Mara. They could not drink the water of Mara because it was bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, What shall we drink? And Moses cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. 
And Moses threw the log into the water, and the water became sweet. And after that, they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water. Twelve springs of water, one for each tribe of Israel. And there were also seventy palm trees, ten times seven, more than enough for the people of Israel. And they camped there by the water. Isaiah is singing a new song of the sea because God is promising a new exodus for the people of Israel. How is this fulfilled in Christ? Well, perhaps you remember that in John 4, Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman and he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And in John 7, 37, Jesus says, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. It's not clear what scripture Jesus is alluding to here. Uh, Commanders understand that he possibly had several passages in mind, including Isaiah 12. After the Exodus, after the crossing of the Red Sea, Moses took Israel to the 12 springs of Elim. Perhaps you remember that also after that, Moses took water from a rock. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the rock was Christ. I remember when I was little and I really couldn't understand that, how that rock could be Christ. Well, Ben said something really important for us this morning. Thank you very much, Ben. That this is called foreshadowing. Or a theological term that is important for us to know is that Paul is speaking typologically. That rock was a type of Christ. It was pointing to Christ. It represented Christ or anticipated what Christ would do, foreshadowing. That rock had water for the people of Israel. Jesus has a more meaningful water for all those who trust in him. How do we respond to that? With joy. The water that Jesus gives us becomes in us a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's why Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. It was not because of the circumstances around him. Paul was in prison and suffering a lot. It was because Paul had this spring of living water flowing from within him. Verses 4, 5, and 6 are a further response to thanksgiving, trust, and joy. Proclamation. Let's please read these these verses again. Verse 4. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, 
make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. So verses 4, 5, and 6 to a great degree repeat what we saw in verses 1, 2, and 3. They also talk about thankfulness, trust, and joy, but there are at least two differences that I want us to see. First, as I said, the you in verse 1 is in the singular, Beginning in verse 3, the you is in the plural. That's why sometimes it is good to go back to the old King James Version. That's how it translates verse 4. And in that day shall we say, Praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his doings among the people, make mention that his name is exalted. So I guess that in, sorry, I'm a Brazilian. I guess that in a southern translation that would be in that day y'all shall say <laughs> or in very modern English you guys shall say. Well, in any case. Now, that's just not one person singing. It's a multitude. That's the first thing that I want us to notice. The second is that the verbs in verses 1, 2, and 3, are in the indicative. The verb is in verses 4, 5, and 6 are in the imperative. So let's go back to high school grammar. The indicative states a matter of fact, something that happened, or there is happening. I will give thanks to the Lord. I will trust, and I will not be afraid these verses are stating something that I will do. But verses 4, 5, and 6 contain commandments, or at least an invitation. That's why they are in the imperative. The people are singing. They are making a proclamation. They are commanding others. Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Proclaim that his name is exalted. How is this fulfilled in Christ? The northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by the Assyrians in 722 BC. So not long before Isaiah began his ministry, around 740 BC. The southern kingdom of Judah was conquered by the Babylonians in 586 BC. In Jeremiah 25, the prophet predicted that the exile of the people of Judah would last for 70 years. And it did. Exactly 70 years later, a new temple was built by Zerubbabel. You can read that in the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Zechariah. But something happened when the foundation of Zerubbabel's temple was laid. Or rather, something didn't happen. The Shekinah, the glory of the divine presence, did not come down on that temple like it did with the tabernacle 
and with Solomon's temple. That's why Ezra chapter 3 says, And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of people's weeping. The prophet Daniel was told that although they would return to Jerusalem after 70 years, that wouldn't be their full restoration. Although the earthly exile would last for 70 years, there was a spiritual exile that would last for 70 times 7 years. But the prophet Haggai said, referring to that temple, the latter, glo- the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. And in John 2, the Jews said to Jesus, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said to him, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. And as the church, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises in the Old Testament. In Acts 1, the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus answered, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Well, according to Peter in Acts 2, we are leaving in these last days. But these last days have aspects of already and not yet. We received the Holy Spirit. We are a temple to the Holy Spirit. But we are waiting for the second coming of Jesus. So, How do we respond to that? We are not going to an earthly Jerusalem. As Revelation 21 describes, we are going to a new Jerusalem, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And in this new Jerusalem, we will find the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And he who is seated on the throne will say, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. 
to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life. Justification precedes sanctification. In the Bible, it is a good rule of thumb that indicatives precede imperatives. First, we are saved. Then God commands us to live like saved people. We can't command unregenerate people to behave like regenerate people. We can't tell someone who is dead to behave like as if they were alive. We need first to preach the gospel. But after we preach the gospel and God works salvation, bringing the person to a new life, then we can teach people to behave like disciples. And if we are saved, then there are some ways in which we should behave. One of them is that salvation leads to proclamation. One of the behaviors we should see in Christians is this desire to proclaim that they are saved. Think about it. If something really really good happened to you, wouldn't you want to talk about it, tell it to other people? People will not be saved unless we preach the gospel to them. We should have a sense of urgency about this. Actually, it should be just just natural for us to do. Because we are saved, because God filled us with thanksgiving, trust, and joy, we should have the desire to proclaim this to others. Because we are waiting for this new Jerusalem, we proclaim the gospel to other people. So, What is the song in your heart today? We have many reasons to be sad. And it is understandable if today the song in your heart is not a happy song. Psalm 137 says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hang up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirrors, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. This is what the people of Israel said when they were in the exile, when they were in Babylon. It was not fitting for them to sing. But for us, even in the middle of sadness and pain, I want to encourage you to look to Jesus. He brought us from exile into the kingdom of God. Jesus gave us a reason to sing. Let's pray. 
Lord, please work in our hearts and produce in our hearts this thanksgiving, this trust, this joy, this desire to proclaim. Thank you for salvation. And please lead us to proclaim this salvation to others. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.